Uh, well, it's uh, good to be back with you. I hope you've had a relaxed morning because we have got a fair amount to cover today and I'm going to stop at 10 to the hour, all right, so uh, to make sure you've got time to get to your next thing. Uh, if you need to walk over to medicine or something like that, uh, at 10 to the hour, whatever I am, mid-sentence, I'm going to stop. I rang up the time before I came, so I have the time correct to the second, so you can just trust me and uh, you're in safe hands. Uh, but I've got a lot to say, we've got a lot of text to cover, and so I'm going to talk fast. Um, so, now's the time to put your thinking caps on, as they say in play school. We're, um, we're looking at one of, I think, the most difficult and yet most important passages in the mighty letter to the Romans. Uh, and it's here above all places, Romans 1.18 through to 3.20, that we face a temptation to kind of dump our presuppositions on the text, to not let it speak for itself, but to assume that it must be talking about something, and uh, then make it say that, rather than let, us, let it tell us what it's actually talking about. And what I think helps is if you keep uh, the main thing, the main thing. All along, the whole way through, Paul is giving a single answer to a single question. And the question is, is God fair? Is God just? Um, that's a big question for us all, isn't it? You may have faced uh, the powerful significance of that question in your own life. Uh, it's when things go wrong, isn't it, that the question raises itself very forcefully and powerfully in our experience. Um, you see it all the time. It's whether it's kind of out there when radio shock jocks lie and bluff their way through cash for comments and then get multi-zillion dollar contracts to change stations in order to do it all again in some fresh place. Uh, Rwanda, Kosovo, September 11, out there, let alone the personal circumstances of your own life, um, the tragedies that you may have faced or you will in the future, because you will. And the question forces itself upon us into our consciousness. Is God fair? Is God just? For Israel, way back in the first century, it was the fact that she was still in exile, still under Roman rule, still under the thumb, and yet supposedly still the people of God. It's a bit like if in a hundred years' time, America is ruled by the mighty nation of Afghanistan. And, and you kind of cry out and say, where is God? Does God care about this? Or is he just not interested? Is he just not interested? That's the issue that Paul is dealing with. Is God fair? And in answer to that single question... He gives a single answer. He makes one single point. And the point is, has God shown that he is righteous? Sorry, sorry. The point is, God has shown that he is righteous, that he doesn't sweep sin and evil under the carpet. He's shown that he's righteous. He's demonstrated, he's proved that fact. And he's done so by the gospel. That is, by making Jesus Lord. And especially because... By Jesus, who is Lord, he will judge sin. Now, that's good news, that God will judge sin. That's good news in the other sense of the word gospel. It's good news for most people in that finally, instead of God being limited to treating the symptoms of evil, at this point, he's going to go for the disease itself. And he's going to eradicate that disease, the disease of evil and sin in our world. That's the consistent main point that he makes. And he makes it three times. Let me give you a helpful diagram Oop, on the board. 
which I love. Okay, right from 1.18 through to 3.20 in Romans, Paul just makes that single point that the wrath of God is revealed in the gospel, in the judgment that will happen through Jesus, so that every mouth is silent. That's the single point that he makes. God has revealed his righteousness, that he cares about sin, that he doesn't just blink at it, that he's going to deal with it fully and finally. And he's going to judge the sin of all people. That includes rank pagans, which is 118 to 32. It includes hypocrites, uh, which is uh, 2, 1 to 16. It even includes, and hold on to your hats here, I mean, this is going to be a shock, it even includes God's own covenant people, the Jews, which is 2, 17 to 3, 19. Everyone is subject to the righteous judgment of God. No one, no one is exempt from it. There is no side door into the kingdom of heaven. You see that in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Immediately after Paul says, uh, in verse 16, I think it is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The very next thing he says is, for the wrath of God is revealed. And the idea is that those two things are connected. That is, the first part of the revealing of the righteousness of God is the revealing of the wrath of God. And it's revealed in precisely the same place, namely in the gospel, or as Paul puts it in 118, from heaven, where Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father. Um, this also makes sense of what I think is the key verse in the whole section, all the way through from 118 to 320, uh, namely chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul speaks of the day, the day of judgment, when God, listen to this, through Jesus Christ judges the secret thoughts of all, and that's precisely, he says, according to my gospel. Judgment, you see, this judgment section of Romans is part of the gospel. And that makes it really clear, doesn't it, about how important it is to understand that the gospel then is about Jesus being raised from the dead and declared to be Lord. That's the gospel. And the first part of that gospel is that this Lord will judge and deal with sin and evil. The other thing it uh, lets you know, and we'll come back to this shortly, is that the whole section is not a kind of preparation for the gospel. This whole section of Romans is not like the bad news before the good news comes in a little while, the good news of chapter 3. No, no, no. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord. And therefore, this whole section is all about that gospel, that God has set a day that will, uh, when he will end evil, when he will judge sin. And so God, therefore, has demonstrated his righteousness. Okay, that's, that's the outline of the passage. If you keep that thought in your mind, Romans 1, 18 to 3.20 just kind of unfold before your very eyes. Let me show you how that happens. Okay, starting at chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, this paragraph here, I think, is probably the most straightforward uh, thing that Paul writes in all of Romans. Um, the point is that those who rankly reject God and his ways 
rank pagans suffer the wrath of God. And Paul paints that grim picture on the biggest canvas of all, that is, on the canvas of the creation of the world and God's power and purposes for all humanity in that, in that creation. Uh, the argument unfolds in three phases. Phase one, God as the creator. God as the creator has left his fingerprints on his handiwork. He's like a, he's like a potter who's created and he's left his fingerprints all over his world. In a nice little pun, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 20, that although God is invisible, his eternal power and divine nature have been made visible through the things that he's made. And people know this. People can see it and they know what the appropriate response is to honour him and give him thanks. But phase two, this is exactly what they have not done. This is exactly what they have not done. Instead, uh, they have rejected God utterly. Paul is at pains to show that the heart of sin, the heart of sin is not doing wrong things. The heart of sin is being in wrong relationship. Three times he says it in verse 23 and verse 25 and verse 28. They exchange the glory of God for images. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than creator. They don't see fit to acknowledge God. They've rejected God as their maker and their creator whom they should worship and honour. And so phase three, as a consequence, God has given them up to the consequences of rejecting the author of life, namely a corrupted existence. And again, he says it, Paul says it three times, verses 24 and 26 and 28. God gave them up. God gave them up. People reject God gave them up. In creation, God gave an ordered pattern of relationships in which human beings fulfill their existence. Joyful and loving submission and obedience to God. Male-female partnership as the image of God and loving dominion over creation. And because, says Paul, people have swapped the first and the last, right? They have not submitted to God but have rejected God and they have not had dominion over creation but they've submitted to creation in worship, in idolatry. Because they've swapped the first and the last, therefore God has also given them up to perverted human relationships as well to what he says is the degrading of their bodies among themselves, and in particular, homosexual perversion. And along with that, every other kind of wickedness and evil. You see at the end of the chapter, it just kind of lists off this whole list. And what Paul is saying is, remember, God has revealed his righteousness because he's made Jesus Lord and he's not going to just pass over sin. Now let me make a comment on what has become, I think, a pretty tricky issue for us. Uh, Romans chapter 1 is the clearest statement about homosexual activity in the New Testament. And it's kind of ironic that the gay activists on campus should attack EU this year in particular. This is more than we've normally seen. Um, I can't remember the time when the EU has said anything publicly about homosexual activity in the last, say, decade. Um, but now, here it is in Romans 1, and we're working our way through Romans, and so here it is to say. I want you to listen very carefully to this. This is very important to get this right. Notice what is condemned here. What is condemned here is homosexual activity, not homosexual orientation. Some of the most heroic Christians around are gay men and women who don't take the easy path of a gay lifestyle, but who for the sake of Christ remain celibate. 
And I want to say, woe to us, woe to us as a group if we do anything other than make such sisters and brothers anything but absolutely welcome and accepted. Secondly, there is a sense in which homosexual sinful activity is as much a theological issue as it is a sexual one. Did you notice that? Um, You see where Paul grounds this sin. It's in the very order of creation itself. Um, This is not just a cultural cringe that the apostle had. This is deeply theologically grounded. We as Christians therefore have no option but to hold the line on this one. I don't care how natural it feels. It doesn't matter how far sociology has progressed. What the scriptures say to us is that homosexual activity is fundamentally contrary to the purpose of God. That's not homophobia. That's theology. It's truth. And so let me say, the church can never condone such activity. It must never ordain active homosexual people, and so on and so on. But in knowing that, in holding that line, don't you dare forget the first point. Don't you dare forget the first point. But thirdly, notice that homosexual activity takes its place among a whole host of other kinds of activities and attitudes, including things like envy and gossip and boastfulness and heartlessness. In another sense, then, you see, homosexual activity is just one sin among many. And it is simply homophobic to treat it differently. Remember, it's not those who are well who have need of a doctor, said Jesus, but the sick. And so he's come to call not the righteous, but sinners, all of us. One other thing, although it's hidden in our English translations of uh, this paragraph... In the Greek, it's clear that Paul is going uh, to quite some length to show that God's handing over of people is entirely fair and just. He kind of lines it up in verse 21. They become futile in their thinking and their senseless hearts, literally, were darkened. And so in verse 24, God gives them up to the lusts of their hearts. In verse 25, they exchange the truth of God about God for a lie. And so in verse 26, they're giving up to exchanged sexual relationships. And in verse 28, they didn't see fit to acknowledge God and so God gives them up literally to an unfit mind. The reason I make uh, that point is this. In his judgment, God is entirely fair and just. He's impartial, if you like. And that's precisely the point that Paul goes on to make in chapter 2. Okay, let's recap for a moment just to make sure we're all on the same page. Remember the point that Paul is making... Paul is making a single point that God has revealed his righteousness in the gospel, in the fact that he's made Jesus Lord. And what we're doing here in this uh, section is looking at the first side of that coin, the judgment of the gospel against all ungodliness and wickedness of people who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Um, In a way, it's kind of obvious, isn't it, actually? But also comforting, especially if you're the victim of such people rank uh, opponents of God and his ways. But what Paul goes on in chapter 2 to say is kind of earth-shattering. He tightens the screws and says, this searching judgment of God, it's not just for them out there, it's for us in here as well. It's not just for those who have completely rejected God, 
It's also for those who know the kindness and forbearance and patience of God, but who are rank hypocrites this time, doing the same things they condemn. Let's pick it up at chapter 2 and verse 3. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then he goes on and spells out exactly how the righteous, the, the, the just, the fair, the impartial judgment of God is revealed on that day according to Paul's gospel. Ready? Verse 6, For he will repay, he will repay according to each one's deeds. To those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why? For God shows no partiality. Now, at this point, let me just uh, say, don't panic. Don't panic. You see, this doesn't sound like the gospel to us, does it? These words sound like works, like merit, like earning your way into God's favour. And so what happens is, I think we tend to do a funny thing with this passage. We make it not the gospel track, but the pre-gospel track. Let me explain what I mean. Here's a railway track. And there's a train. And here's another railway track over here. But this is a nice big train. It's got wheels instead. Okay? And we say, um, what Paul is obviously doing here, what Paul is obviously doing here is he's uh, working on two different tracks. There's the gospel track and there's the pre-gospel track. And this whole section is all about the pre-gospel track. And what he does is he tells you to drive your train down the pre-gospel track, down it goes, all the way, he leads you all the way until he says, guess what? Road pizza. The track doesn't work. You can't earn your way to heaven. Everyone sins and uh, you just have a big crash or track pizza. You know? Okay. I thought that was good. No one is good enough, you see. So what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 2 is he's eliminating this as an option in order to give the bright green pastures of the gospel option, uh, which which he explains in 3, 21 to 31. All right? Now, hear me carefully here. Hear me carefully. I'm saying that is all true. What What this is trying to express is all true. There simply is no way anyone can be good enough to earn favour with God. There's no way that anyone can earn merit before God. There is only one track. There is only one track. It's the gospel track. I'm saying that's true. It just has nothing to do with what Paul is saying here. Paul is still telling us about 
the gospel, the gospel that Jesus is Lord and will judge all wickedness. And he's not talking about some hypothetical pre-gospel thing in order to lead to the gospel. And you can tell that because immediately after this paragraph, when he tightens the screws further, he says explicitly that it is the gospel that God will judge the secret thoughts of all through Jesus Christ. No, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that the righteous judgment of the gospel, the righteous judgment of God, will include everyone. Even us who know the kindness of God. And that judgment, that judgment will be absolutely impartial. It will be according to our deeds, says the Apostle. That is, according to the way that we have lived our lives. And his point is, you see, there is no security, therefore, there is no security for hypocrites who judge others and yet do the same thing themselves. Now, again, don't panic. Paul is not saying that we earn our way to heaven. The language is not about earning at all. Notice what he says. He says that when people receive eternal life, they receive it, verse 7, as a gift. Uh, what they've done is to seek for glory and honour and immortality by, by patiently doing good, that the whole of their lives, not, not weighing every individual little thing, that's our modern kind of scientific percentage worldview, that's, that, that's got nothing to do with the biblical worldview, but the whole, the totality of their lives, they have patient, by patiently doing good sought for glory and honour and immortality. And notice that those are exactly the same terms that we use to describe what the rank pagans of chapter 1 did not do. In other words, what these people are is not idolaters. They're seeking for something. They're not meriting something. Notice also that the, the whole context of chapter 2 is one of grace. He's talking about those who have experienced the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. We're talking about gospel people. Paul is just saying what all the Old Testament prophets said. You want to write down some verses here and check this out? This is right through the Bible. Check out, get it? Jeremiah 17 verse 10. Jeremiah 17 verse 10. 23 verse 2. Ezekiel 7, verses 8 to 9. Ezekiel 18, verse 30. And Ezekiel 33, 20. That's Ezekiel 7, 8 to 9, 18, 30, 33, 20. Try Hosea 4, 9, and I could give you hundreds more, literally. Paul is just saying what Jesus himself said. Check out John chapter 5, verse 29. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. That's John 5, 29. Matthew 7, 15 to 23, Matthew 25, 31 to 36, again, among hundreds of other texts that I could point you to. Paul is just saying what he himself says elsewhere. Check out Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, Colossians 3, 25, where he uses exactly the language here. Again, amongst hundreds of other texts. Paul is just saying what the whole Bible says. God will judge the evidence of our lives and is righteous in doing so. There is no hiding place for the blatantly hypocritical, not even if they are part of God's covenant people, since his judgment, you see, is of the Jew first and also the Greek Now, if you're a Jew, if you're a Jew, right now, you are freaking out. Freaking out. 
No way, you'd be saying. And you may have this thought yourself. No way. We're God's special people. So we get special treatment. We bypass that whole judgment thing. We don't go through the main door of judgment. We get in the side elevator around here. Right? That's the whole deal. That's the point. And so Paul goes on and says, which part of the phrase, no partiality, don't you understand? Verse 12. Begins with a four in the Greek, but uh, untranslated for us. For all who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now remember in the New Testament, when you hear the word law, think Old Testament law from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on. And Paul says God won't execute this judgment on the basis of ignorance. If you sin, the standard is what you sinned against. And we've already heard about what that is in chapter 1, haven't we? For those who are outside the law. What could be fairer than that, he says? It's a fair judgment. And so he goes on and explains further. Verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. That is, pass the judgment on judgment day when the wrath of God is revealed. Okay, just hearing God's righteous requirements counts for nothing, says Paul. It's no big deal. You want to know how God lives? You want to know how God wants you to live? Well, who cares? It's living it that matters. And again, don't overread Paul here. He's not saying it's the hearers of the law, but the doers of... Sorry, he's not saying it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law who will be justified and justified because they did the law. No, all he's saying along with the whole Bible is that there has to be a correspondence between being justified and doing. In fact, Paul really, I mean, he really uh, rubs salt into this wound, actually, to these outraged Jews and says, you want to know how serious I am about this? Let Let me tell you how serious I am about this. Verse 14. When Gentiles, okay, when Gentiles who do not possess the law Uh, do instinctively, there's a translation issue there, I'll come back to in a moment, do what the law requires. These, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. Now the word for do instinctively there is actually literally by nature. Okay? Um, And it's probably best to put the by nature bit not with the doing, but with the possessing of the law. He he makes exactly the same use of exactly the same phrase in chapter 2, verse 27, where he talks about, again, it's hidden in the translation, being physically uncircumcised. What What literally that is, is being uncircumcised by nature. In other words, what he's saying is that when Gentiles who by nature don't have God's law, you see how it changes the meaning there? When Gentiles who by nature don't have God's law, because they're Gentiles, do what the law requires they show that those things are written on their hearts. Now, you're, if you're a Jew, you're, you're kind of, your whole, he put, he's messing with your mind, you know? I mean, that, that can't be right. That can't be right. It's that last phrase, actually, written on their hearts, that lets you know that what Paul is talking about here is not, uh, you know, pygmies in deepest, darkest Africa, uh, people who turn out actually, after all, to be good people, good enough for God, so they do stuff that's good enough, and so there is this other second track. No, no, Paul's not talking about that at all. 
Now that, that phrase, written on their hearts, that's a very, very loaded Old Testament term, which ought to set bells ringing for, for us. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 31 and verses uh, 31 to 34, where God promises to make, you see, a new covenant, a covenant that cannot be broken, unlike the old covenant, where he will write his law on people's hearts. What's more, it's exactly this category of new covenant that Paul uses at the end of this chapter, chapter 2, this time picking up the other great new covenant passage, Ezekiel 36, and its reference again to a new heart. In other words, what Paul is so serious about this no partiality thing in the judgment which all people will go through that he can go so far as to say that new covenant Gentiles, these are Christian Gentiles here, new covenant Gentiles who do the things of the law, they will be justified. And what's more, the flip side is true too. Old covenant Jews who don't do the things of the law will be condemned. That's the point he makes in the very next paragraph. You see where we're going? Firstly, here, we've moved up to hypocrites. Now we're talking about the covenant people of God. Chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and determine what is best because you're instructed in the law and you are sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then that teach others, will you not also teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You that forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, will you rob temples? You that boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Notice two things about this paragraph. First, this is Paul's first explicit statement about what's wrong with the old covenant and the old covenant people of God. And what's really important that is, is that he says what's wrong is not that they are trying to earn merit before God by keeping the law. No, the problem is that they don't keep the law, that they don't do what's right, that as a nation they sin and they sin so consistently, they've so repeatedly broken the, God's old covenant law that the very name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. The problem is not boasting per se. The problem is not the law or even obeying the law. In fact, he's very positive about the law. Did you notice? It's the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In chapter 5, he says, we boast in all sorts of things as Christians in Jesus Christ. We boast. Boasting's a good thing to do. We boast in God, actually. Now, the problem is disobeying the law, as it has been right throughout the chapter. We'll talk more about that next week. Notice, secondly, Israel had a mission. Israel had a mission to be a light to those who are in darkness, to be a guide to the blind, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children. In other words, a mission to the Gentiles. Israel always existed for the sake of the rest of the world, to be God's kingdom, to be God's solution to the problem of sin in the world. And what Paul says is that instead of being part of the solution, Israel has become part of the problem. The doctor 
has become the bearer of the virus and is infecting patients all around the world. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Israel is herself enmeshed in sin and so you see she has forfeited the right to be the people of God. Verse 25. Circumcision, which is the kind of the key mark of the people of God. Circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, then your circumcision, now just kind of try and wrap your mind around this one, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if those who are uncircumcised, that is Gentiles, again talking Christian Gentiles here, keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised or uncircumcised by nature, that's that phrase, but keep the law will condemn you that have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For you see, he says, a Jew, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. Praise from God. You see what he's saying? He's saying circumcision, that badge of being the people of God from the Old Testament, has become a badge which tells a lie. The true people of God, the true Jew, if you like, are now God's new covenant people. Circumcised where Moses, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6, and Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, where, it, where they said it always counted circumcised in the heart. And in a way, Paul has kind of made his point now. Paul has made his point. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel judgment of Jesus Christ against all ungodliness, even that of his own people. And he's ready to make the next point, that the gospel reveals not only his judging righteousness, but also his saving righteousness. That's what we look at next week from chapter 3, verse 21 onwards. The first half of chapter 3 really is just a, a series of tidying up operations. Uh, verses 1 to 9 get on, get on the table some kind of wriggling objections to what Paul has said from a Jewish point of view. Those objections come from that God has been unfaithful to his covenant partner Israel. Um, I say gets them on the table because he doesn't really answer these objections and, and show how God has not been unfaithful. Uh, he only picks them up towards the end of his letter in chapters 9 to 11. Um, which say some really important things. However, this paragraph confirms the point that I've been making all along, that right throughout this whole section, the whole section, what Paul is dealing with is the righteousness, the faithfulness, the truthfulness of God. Those are the categories he deals in. And that only leaves the, the coup de grace of verses 9 to 20 of chapter 3. In case there are any lingering doubts about his point, that the righteous judgment of God is against even his own people, that he will test even his own people, Paul launches a barrage of Old Testament citations. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who is understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive the... Ven I mean, it just goes on. And Paul makes his point. You see verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law. Who's that? That's Israel. 
This text here is not proving the universal sinfulness of humankind. That's not what it's meant to do. It's to show Jews who think they get a special side door into the kingdom of God that know what the law says, it says, to those who are under the law, so that every mouth is silenced. Here we are, you see. Rank pagans, hypocrites who sins, the covenant people who sin, anyone who sins, every mouth is silent before God and the whole world maybe is accountable to him. The gospel reveals the righteous wrath of God against all ungodliness and wickedness. And there are no favoured nation clauses. Okay, let me make three very quick points to conclude. One, this text answers the question that is on the lips of and in the hearts of so many people. Does God care? Is God fair? Will the bad guys win? And the gospel tells us once and for all the answer. No, God is righteous. He does care. He is fair. The bad guys will not get away with it. All who do evil will face the righteous judgment and wrath of God because God has made Jesus Lord because of the gospel. That's why there's such a big emphasis in the New Testament on waiting patiently, on loving your enemies, on not striking back because we can trust God. We can trust God that he will do all that for us. That things will be put to rights and people will be brought to account. That leads to the second point. Hear this clearly. People apart from Christ, dead in their sins and transgressions, are going to hell. You need to hear and understand that at the core of your being. It is the second most important thing that you can know about a person. The most important thing is next week. Don't miss that. But every person you sit to in, next to in lectures, every person you chat with after a tutorial, every person, look around this afternoon as you go on your way, every person, if they're not in Christ, then they are going to hell and their prospects consist of the wrath of God. That's the case for obvious sinners. That's the case for moral noble, virtuous people who've received so much from God but it doesn't lead them to repentance and so they just uh, remain in hypocrisy. And the inescapable conclusion that we must share with, uh, is that we must share with Paul the, the same burning passion, you see, that he has to reap a harvest, to proclaim the gospel with no shame, with the opposite of shame, with, with what he calls barefaced boldness. What's more, that doesn't need to stop with your spare time, your incidental conversations. Each of you over the next few weeks, uh, sorry, the next few years, needs to ask and answer the question whether God is sending you into his harvest field to invest your considerable abilities and talents in the financially mediocre but spiritually abundant full-time ministry. You need to ask that of yourself. You need to pray that God would make it clear to you if that's what he would have you do. And it's a third aim of a you to help you in that. Thirdly, this is a very serious warning against complacency. God is impartial. You don't get special treatment because the judge is your father. Do you hear that? He's a righteous judge. That's what's being revealed by the gospel. And you will face him one day and he will reward each one according to their deeds. 
In Christ, you're a new covenant person. You've been renewed inwardly. It's a matter of the heart. It's spiritual. It's not according to the law. And you've got to live that out. Now, I know that's hard for us to hear. That's hard for us to hear, not least because we have a battery of slogans, which I think don't help us. When someone says the church is full of hypocrites, we say, no, 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 come on in, there's plenty of room. Implying that really none of us are anything but hypocrites. We say that only bad people go to heaven. And what's more, I understand why we say those things. There's some truth in them, but they're half-truths. And when we make half-truths whole truths, they become untruths. What Paul says here is that hypocrites, those who deny in their lives what they affirm with their mouths, hypocrites whose lives are rightly characterised by self-seeking and being obedient not to the truth but wickedness, for them on the last day will be wrath and fury. It's not true that only bad people go to heaven. It's only those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honour and immortality that go to heaven. They don't go there because they're good. But our lives do need to tell one story, the story of the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the judge of the living and the dead. And we, pray that, uh, we praise you that you have poured out your mercy and grace upon us. And we ask that you would give us the strength of your spirit to live the lives that you have, us, have for us as your new covenant people. And it's in your own great name we pray. Amen.